Hey everyone, welcome back to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or VEDS, which I also have. This is Katie, and today I have Mariah with me who's going to tell us her story with VEDS. Hey Mariah. Hey Katie, how are you? I'm doing good, how are you? Good, I'm nervous, but <laughs> I'll get through it. No need to be. Um, I'm really glad that you're sharing your story. I as you probably know, like I love talking to people about their stories with beds. It's been really special. So thank you for coming on to share your story. Definitely. I appreciate all the interviews you've done and it's nice to remember that there's other people out there. So how are you diagnosed with beds? Um, so for me, it started after a hysterectomy. I was about 37. Um, and really, like a couple years before that is when I had um, an appendix rupture. Um, and when I went into the ER, they did a CT scan then. Um, it was in my mid to late 30s. And... Mm -hmm with the CT scan they found um, the abdominal aortic aneurysm um, and there was some other stuff that goes with that like a dissection into both iliac arteries and the right renal artery um, oh, wow. which I mean honestly at that time I felt sort of invincible like we had really really crappy insurance and a super high deductible. <laughs> so that, um, I don't know if other people have experienced that too, but like through your 20s and maybe your 30s a bit too, you sort of um, are probably, I felt like I was in the prime of my life. I was running like six miles, um, maybe two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. um, not really worried about that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, an appendix rupture or removal is pretty common. Um, and it was confusing to, to know that they saw an aneurysm and I wasn't really familiar with that was um, the vascular surgeon that consulted on that case um, was not helpful at all. We'll, we'll call him Dr. G. Um, and um, he was convinced that although I could not remember anything, that I had to have had some kind of blunt force trauma to my abdomen at some time in my life. And that is where the aneurysm and dissection came from. So um, so he thought that the renal dissection, the iliac dissections, and the abdominal aortic aneurysm came from, from that? Yes. Okay. From an imaginary... Yes, this thing that I could not remember happened. I mean, I've been in a couple car accidents, you know, um, that that was really all I could think of. And he's like, oh, no, nope, it wouldn't have happened from a car car accident. So I was like, I, I got nothing. Um, and I and after the fact, too, my mom even went to an appointment with me and she she directly asked him, is this some kind of congenital thing? situation that we're dealing with um, and the words out of his mouth were absolutely not um, and so his recommendation was just to watch it really to mm -hmm. make sure it doesn't grow which is kind of what we all do now anyway 
Um, but also during, you know, during that time, my menstrual cycles were getting worse and worse and worse, um, which eventually led me to that hysterectomy mm-hmm. um, with Dr. Jimmy um, here in Omaha, and he he is really a doctor. Um, I would describe him as an angel. <laughs> um, he was like most incredible bedside manner. Um, I mean, really, he's like an OBGYN, and he he does surgery too. Um, but that is that's when he made the comment, actually using the term vascular Ehlers-Danlos and VEDS, um, to my husband after surgery because it was supposed to be an endoscopy, I think that's the right word, um, but because there was so much endometriosis, um, my uterus was actually fused to my bowel, part of my bowel, um, which was why I was having, yeah, horrible, right? Having so much pain, especially when I went to the bathroom, um, just tons of bleeding. So the surgery went a lot longer than it should have, but Anyway, today I have one ovary left. Um, that was probably the best decision I ever made to get that um, disgusting part of my body removed. Like it changed just my quality of life for real. Yeah. I know that's a weird thing to say, but um, no, I've considered that too. And he, and it's nice to hear you say yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, so although, I mean, that was definitely not his specialty, um, so he didn't want to, you know, say, guys, she's got it and you need to do something about it. So he said, please look into it. Um, if you have any questions, I can direct you, you know, give you some referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was recovering from my hysterectomy, um, very quickly after that, I got a bowel obstruction. Um, so during that whole time, Brian, my husband was doing a lot of research and, um, I mean, we've been together for almost 20 years, so he's known me for a long time and all the weird things that happen with my body. Um, like that's even a disclaimer that I had started saying when I had doctor's appointments before my diagnosis, you know, something would happen and I'd be like, okay, so I have kind of a weird body, and this is what's happening. Um, But after we started reading more about VEDS, I mean, everything just fell into place, um, Mm -hmm. and we got hooked up with the geneticist. um, And I told you before, you know, it was eight weeks, which um, is relatively short, it sounds like, from a lot of people's experiences. But, man, that was torturous, waiting eight weeks. you know, and we were 90% sure that it was going to be positive, um, but there was this little part in me that was thinking, like, what if he calls and says, yeah, your body is super messed up, but you don't have beds? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that part was was more scary than, than thinking he was going to call and say, you know, yes, it's a positive result. Um, so there was some relief we got that call, I think it was um, 4th of July weekend because I was afraid he would be gone all week and not call. 
<laughs> but he did. He's so kind. He actually moved. The geneticist, Dr. Rush, moved to Kansas City now, but um, a very kind man. Um, and so then we just kind of had to sit with that for a while. And um, part of that healing process, too, after the bowel obstruction, which, by the way, was way more painful than the appendix rupture, um, my Achilles was just all screwed up um, in my right leg. So three months after my hysterectomy, I had an Achilles lengthening surgery on my right leg, hmm. which I had already had done on my left leg in high school. So you just have like a weird, so was... a weird body history for real. <laughs> Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Like that. Um, I mean, it's hard. Like sometimes you think like, gosh, that was the hardest experience I've ever had. And then something else comes along and you're like, nope, that was way more painful and way more sucky. And I can't believe I made it through that. And then something else comes along and you're like, hmm, this really sucks too. <laughs> But <laughs> no, that's I can been I totally experience relate for a while. to that, though. I totally relate to yeah, that. Yeah, okay, good. That um, sounded extremely negative. Yeah. No, I totally, <clears throat> I totally understand that because um, I felt like that a lot of my life, too. How did you deal with it when you got the diagnosis? You said that it was a little bit relieving, but, like, how did that yeah. impact you emotionally when you got that call? Um. That is a good one. So at the time, I had a boot on my right leg um, and was still working full-time and thinking about the whole word spontaneous, I guess. That's what still kind of sticks with me today is that... I'm definitely a type A person and I like to plan and I like to control things and I like to prepare and know what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I also like my privacy too. Um, one of the things that Dr. Rush recommended was please get a medical ID. Um, and my fear was people would look at me differently. Um, if I had a medical ID, my privacy, I felt like would be gone. Um, I wanted to, my career is very important to me and I, and I pictured having to give that up. I, mm -hmm. I catastrophized everything initially, I guess is the way it, it was. Um, I felt very sorry for myself for a while. I would get very, very angry. Um, it's the whole grief and loss process yeah. that I'm guessing everybody with this diagnosis or any major medical diagnosis experiences that, I mean, I was really, really pissed at first. And every time my body did not do what I wanted it to do, I would just feel enraged. Um, and so angry, 
which would freak Brian out because he, my husband, he would always be like, your blood pressure, just chill out. You know, <laughs> <Like> <laughs> spontaneous, spontaneously explode on me right now. But, um, I mean, there's, of course, there's still days like that, even though it's been four-ish years, something like that. I just turned 42 mm-hmm. in December. Um, and it is something I think about every day. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I am free from the fears and worries of something happening. Um, and I don't know if... I'm more consciously aware of the little weird pains I have, um, but then that spikes my anxiety. Um, I don't know; those thoughts just never really go away. Like right now, I'm relatively healthy, thank goodness. I just had a weird situation with my radial artery, but um, it's feeling really good right now. So. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I answered that question today. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did, because um, okay. okay, I, I felt like that, and for me, it was, you know, it was not as much rage, but I would get rage when somebody would tell me, oh well, I mean, you were always, you know, you could always get hit by a bus. Like that, like mm, little statements like that, one. that yeah. or the ones where <laughs> yeah. like somebody, like let's say at work, somebody did know, you know, they're like in the public. I used to work yeah. in government and, mm. you know, this 80, he must have been 82 or 84 and he came in and he said, it was, a, it was the same week of my diagnosis. And he said, oh, when you're my mm. age, you know, you'll understand. And I just remember being so hurt <laughs> by that because it was like, oh, I am not gosh. getting to your age. <laughs> like, there's no way. Yeah. yeah. But I just had to stifle right. it because I was working. <laughs> and so right. I, yeah. it does. It hits you all the time. And I think for me, it got a little less and less as the as the time went on. Is that yeah. how that happened for you? Um, I think that I am more accepting of my body um, and its limitations. I, I mean, I used to love running, um, and if it wasn't for my Achilles problems in both legs, I would still do it. I mean, that was therapy for me and definitely part of my identity. So I had to have, you know, a grieving process with that part of myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it kind of, it goes back and forth, I guess. There's acceptance for this is a real diagnosis and this is why my body um, is the way that it is. But then sometimes that anger seeps in and especially when I mean I'll just be honest this sounds really petty too but we live pretty close to a lake where I used to love to run and I drive by there sometimes on the way to work and when I see a runner um, I have a flash of hatred for them and how awesome their bodies are working and how much I miss being able to 
partake in that. I mean, that was definitely part of my therapy, being out in nature and running and just having a place to think. Um, that might have partially been where that ab abdominal aortic aneurysm and dissection um, happened because I thought I was so healthy. Mm -hmm. um, but when when we met with a cardiologist, we kind of, Brian and I both went back over some situations. Um, and when I was 30, Brian's a little bit older than me, we went to Hawaii. My cousin lives on the island of Kauai. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard, there's this amazing and scary trail um, it's an 11 mile trail from one part of the island to a beach and the only way that you can get there is either like by boat or by this trail mm -hmm. um, and so we backpacked in there and part of <laughs> it's like looking back it sounds really dumb because I the ocean is really beautiful to me but also very scary um, and part of the trail, um, I think, is called Crawler's Ledge, where I did actually crawl most of the way because you are right on the edge of, you know, the cliffs that go into the ocean. Oh, my gosh. Um, like, very beautiful, but also um, terrifying. <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we were super lucky that it wasn't raining. It was beautiful, beautiful weather. I mean, it took us, you know, a whole day to get there with all the um, ups and downs and rocks and strange paths and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but after making it 11 miles to the beach, I mean, it was worth it. Um, but I think that my blood pressure was so high for probably an entire day <laughs> that when we finally made it to the beach and we just sat down to kind of relax, I mean, it was within five minutes, um, I felt this major ripping feeling from, I, I mean, if I remember correctly, probably from my right knee all the way up to my groin. Oh, my. And I thought, okay, I totally screwed up a tendon. Something snapped in my leg um, because I had had so many problems with my left Achilles and knee surgeries, you know, when I was in high school on my left leg. Um and I remember grabbing him even and was like waiting for it to stop and it just traveled right up my leg and I was like okay it stopped that was weird and then when I got up I could walk a couple yards and my thigh would tighten up so much so that I felt like the circulation was being cut off oh, wow. um, so 
I was thinking in my head, catastrophizing again, but not uh, thinking aortic dissection, right. <laughs> um, but thinking like, okay, I'm going to have to have another leg surgery or I'm having like compartment syndrome or something is cutting off the circulation. I don't know what's happening, but I'm screwed because I, there's no way I can go back 11 miles on that crazy trail. Yeah. Um, but uh, like a long very long story short, um, we found these lovely guys that had a kayak. And so we actually kayaked off the beach and went back around part of the island to where our car was parked. Um, and, you know, that was my invincible healthy 30s where I thought I could make it through anything. So we got back to the mainland um, and for about six months, my leg would tighten up a little bit when I would walk. Um, and then it went away, and I never went to the doctor <laughs> <laughs> because I was avoiding, you know, like I did not want to have surgery on my legs and be in a cast and yeah. be on crutches, and um, I'm pretty sure that's when the big stuff happened was, um, I mean, I guess there's no way to know for sure, really. Yeah, you but, can kind of guess based on the, the symptoms, but when it's in the past like yeah. that, it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's the way that I've heard it described before. It, it really mm-hmm. is so bizarre to think of that too, but like a ripping sensation, like yeah. I pulled a muscle or a tendon. Um, so you've mentioned a few times, um, you know, your history of like r- ripping a tendon or – yeah. You know, tearing mm-hmm. your you, you mentioned knee surgery, um, your Achilles and both both legs, right? Yes. So when you got this VEDS diagnosis, did that explain all of those things? Had all of those things been happening throughout your life? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um my veins have always been really visible too. Um I work like I work with kids now. I'm a mental health therapist, and mostly I work work with kids. But I have been for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very common statement from my little honest friends is usually like, "Miss Mariah, what are those blue things on your arms?" And they're referring to my veins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was never offended. I mean, you know, kids are being curious, right? And so I'd just be like, oh, buddy, those are my veins. You got veins too. We all have veins. And then they'd look at their arms and be like, I don't have those veins. (laughs) You know, (laughs) because they didn't see them at all. It was just like, yeah, they're in there. They're in there somewhere. Um, And, I mean, my hands have always been super veiny and my feet um, and then always bruising and cutting myself. Like I don't leave the house without band-aids. Mm-hmm. I've gotten weird looks from people. Like if somebody suddenly needs a band-aid, I'll just whip one out of my pocket and they'll be like, <laughs> uh, okay, sure. <laughs> you just carry your first aid kit on you. Um, I mean, and then there's other stuff too, like headaches, um, not so much gastro stuff except, you know, after surgery that yeah. um, problem. But How did luckily, that feel growing up, not knowing what those things yeah. in your body were from? Yeah. Um, 
to a certain extent still now, but I I had always hated my body and felt very, very different um, from everybody else, from my friends. Um, I'm an only child. I don't have siblings, and I'm the only one in my family with the VEDS diagnosis. So um, I, I think of volleyball a lot. Like in middle school, I wanted to do what all my friends did. I wanted to play volleyball, and I did for a little bit. Um, and Katie, it was so stinking painful bumping. I can't <laughs> play volleyball either. On the rit, like that is like such a sensitive spot with yeah. all the um, blue veins popping out, and I would always have bruises, and I just wanted to do it, and nobody else had bruises, and I was kind of a freak. Um, I just felt like my body wasn't doing what other people's bodies were doing, which was true, <laughs> but I didn't, like, that's the worst thing ever, right, when you're younger or in middle school that you don't want to be different from your friends, um, especially in, like, a weird medical way. Right. Um, yeah, because, I mean, so, like, when you're growing yeah. up, you've got you've got friends, and, like, we all worry, even without something like this, I think everybody worries about being too different. Or not yes. fitting in. And then you have all this extra stuff. Yes, for sure. That's exactly right. Yeah, and there wasn't um, – I mean, I had that other calf – I had two calf surgeries after my Achilles repair in high school. Um, and even the doctors, I mean, they were clueless. They're like, yeah, you're, you're um, ACL ruptured. It was torn in half. Um, but then that's when my Achilles tightened up and they had no answers, absolutely none, um, nothing to compare it to. I, I really felt a lot of the times they were like, you know, this is a sad teenage girl that doesn't want to go to school, um, that wants attention. Um, I mean, obviously there was something wrong. I couldn't walk and my muscle had tightened up so much that I was walking on my tippy toes mm -hmm. at one point. Um, but that to not even have validation from supposedly very educated medical professionals too. That sucked. That really sucked. <laughs> so when you got the diagnosis, how did your family take it? You said you're the only one in your family? Yes, only one in my family. Um, so Brian, my husband, is all about research um, and he had some time to do that on his own while I was recovering from my hysterectomy and bowel obstruction um, and Achilles lengthening surgery. And so we could talk about it, and it made sense to me. Um, so I was on board, and it was right sort of around Christmas time that I had that hysterectomy because I had time off work. And so my parents came to visit us. Um, and my mom is a nurse, or she just retired actually last year. Um, and my mom and dad are together. And Brian said he had a couple phone calls with them. Um, and they were, or at least my mom specifically, was just not accepting what Brian was telling her. Um, I think it's sort of twofold. I think it has to do with her being a nurse. Um, 
and I think that she has a lot of guilt with my diagnosis coming so much later in life um, mm -hmm. that she is the type of person that, I mean, what a great mom. She is so loving and caring and um, of course I don't blame her for <laughs> not knowing about this strange diagnosis when I was younger. Um, but I think that was part of her de denial too. Um, and then of course me just being their only child, that was like a catastrophizing experience to think like um, all these things do make sense, but that means some very serious medical concerns that they weren't ready to talk about or accept. Mm -hmm. So how do you talk to them about it now? Has it changed over the last four years? Um, yes, I am very careful with what I share with my mom. She'll probably listen to this podcast later. <laughs> so <laughs> now I feel like I have to be careful. Um, I get headaches a lot and I don't always tell her when I get headaches. Um, I, I like to run things by her because of her medical knowledge, but I definitely, you know, when there's an ache or pain, I would rather send a message to my doctor or his nurse um, rather than calling up my mom because it's too hard for her to be objective, you know. And, I mean, her advice is always get yourself to the ER. Yeah. So um, she, I can be real with her, but at the same time, it's, you know, when I see her face or um, just gauge her response, I just, I have to censor what I tell her. Mm-hmm. And Brian, too, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm not going to put myself in danger and hide, you know, symptoms or problems, but um, I think that all of us probably censor what we tell our loved ones. Yeah. I know I do because I don't want to worry somebody unless it's absolutely necessary to worry them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I don't want... You probably feel this too. Like I don't, I don't want to see the pain on somebody's face when I talk about like the lack of long longevity right. of my life. That's possible, you know. Like it's not yeah. set in stone, but right. I think about okay, you know, the median being fifty-one, or you know, some medians yeah. are reported as forty-eight, and that's not an average. Yep. It means that fifty percent of people who have been studied have made it to that age. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, realistically, <laughs> like I like to think about everything realistically and I, mm -hmm. I worry about that harming the people around me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Brian and I have had discussions about end-of-life care. Um, and I think he is 
you know, realistic in that way too, but it's not a fun conversation to have by any means. <laughs> I mean with with anybody. <clears throat> but but I don't want my death to be like a traumatic surprise for people too. I do want them to have the facts and and um I don't know. It's a hard balance, I guess. Yeah. How has that impacted like your friendships or coworkers or anything like that? Yeah. yeah I, um, I did not tell anybody for a long time. It felt like such a heavy burden to place onto someone. Um, I have a number of friends that I feel very close to. Um, and I mean, there is that aspect of us, you know, the majority of us at a certain time looking very healthy. Um, and then, I mean, the people that care about you are believing you, of course. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess maybe it's the medical trauma of not having doctors believe me, but I always have that in the back of my mind, like, um, is she sure she knows what she's talking about when I tell somebody? But um, there have been a few friends that I have specifically chosen to tell, but it's taken a long time. Like it definitely wasn't within that first year. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have a medical ID now that I wear um, just because I think – I mean, I work full time, you know, 40 hours a week. So the majority of my time, I'm, I would be with people that have no clue if I, I don't know, passed out or something weird happened. So, yeah. um, I guess that gives maybe Brian and me a better peace of mind having that, even though it, it does feel like my privacy is lessened. Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone has been very supportive, of course, and I just had some yearly scans a couple weeks ago, and um, my therapy team at work knew about it, and they were just beyond supportive, and as, I mean, of course they would be, right? <laughs> so, I don't know what I expected, that they would... I don't know. I guess denial is a big part of it for the people that care about you. So um, I guess that is part of it in the back of my mind, too, that I'm afraid people will just be like, you know, not to be hurtful, but they just want to live in that denial phase. Mm -hmm. Like it isn't as serious as it really is. Yeah. 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 I think I think some people are more comfortable in that. Definitely. And yeah. when I was first diagnosed, it was it was difficult to not want to, like, push it with those people. Oh yeah. So I was like, "Do you not really know how serious this is?" But yeah. I really had to fight that. Um, and I think it's like self. I I almost think for some people, it's a little bit of self protection. Like they they need to believe that. Yes. I think you're right. Yeah, it is. It can be very frustrating, but I mean, I it's 
it sort of helps me remember that they are going through their whole process separately from what I'm feeling. Um, you know, especially the ones closest to us are processing things on a whole different level and yeah. grief and loss of the relationship and what that means for their future without us. And um, I think whether they talk about it out loud or not, it's probably going through their heads. Yeah, I'm sure. Is there anything that you would tell somebody who is just diagnosed with this that you think might help them cope with the diagnosis? Ooh, definitely. I'm glad you asked. Um, so I am a mental health therapist, and I do have my own therapist that I go see, um, and she is lovely, and I don't know that I would be able to deal with this Um not that I'm always healthy about it, but um, in the way that I do now without her, um, just to have somebody who is neutral, um, you know, who doesn't have a personal relationship with me to, you know, I save up, I don't know if other people do this too, but I can compartmentalize things. Um, so if something happens during the week, I save it all for my therapist, Linda. <laughs> Poor Linda. <laughs> and she helps me process through things. I mean, a lot of it is um, the relationships and especially work. I struggled a lot with, you know, talking to HR or my supervisors or whether or not to get scans every year. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, all the other fun stuff you can talk about in therapy, which is basically anything. Um, but I really, I don't know how anybody could get a diagnosis like this and not have a mental health professional to talk to. It is so beneficial, and I wish that everybody could do it. I wish that the genetic counselors and, you know, the vascular surgeons would emphasize that when they're talking to patients um, because this is heavy, heavy stuff um, and you you might be lucky enough to have a supportive family, which I feel like I do, but at the same time, there's some real disturbing stuff that maybe you don't want to share with the ones that care about you the most, right? <laughs> because that is disturbing to them so so please find a mental health professional or you guys I mean any of you guys can message me and I'll try to you know search the area or a lot of places people say it's too expensive but a lot of places have sliding fee scales if that they don't take your insurance mm -hmm. um, a lot of times you can work with an intern through a college um, and so, I mean, if you have a good pastor or, you know, someone like that that you can talk to, it's nice to have that, that, you know, someone you don't have a personal relationship with to yeah. talk to about it. Because you can't really hurt their feelings or worry Absolutely. them when you yeah. say something that you might have held back from somebody else. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yes. That's really good advice. I think I saw one for a few months after I was first diagnosed and it was really helpful just having somebody to go and unload those things on that I was like holding in all week. 
Yeah, good. Yeah. So definitely. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention to the listeners about your story? Um, I don't think so. Um, I just appreciate what you do, and I, I love our support groups that we have. I don't know what I'd do without you guys, and um, it's nice to know that we're not alone. I felt alone for a long time before I found the Facebook group and some other groups too, and um, we are not alone, and that's a good feeling. Yeah. It's a really good feeling. <laughs> yeah. I felt the same way. I thought I was the only one that – like I was the only one I knew and I didn't know about the VEDS group on Facebook or anything. So it was yeah. just kind of me and YouTube for a little while. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. And thank you for being so brave to do that. Goodness. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It was hard at the beginning. It was uh, – I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not, but it was – at the beginning, there were multiple times where I dealt with imposter syndrome and just like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. I should just delete all of this. Nobody wants oh, to hear this. And then like somebody <laughs> would reach out to me with their story randomly. Yes, cool. And it would always be like around that time when I was seriously thinking about deleting it. <laughs> like, Yeah. And somebody oh, would goodness you out. kept going. Oh, man. I'm so glad I did now. You know, for a while, for sure. it was really a struggle. So mm -hmm. I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Yeah. You. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. This is Staying Connected and this is Katie, your host, talking to Mariah about her story with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, thank you so much for, for Mariah for sharing your story and thank you everybody for listening. This is a monthly podcast on the last Sunday of every month. So stay tuned and talk to you soon.